Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to the new books. My name is Ikir Englander, your host today. When we think about mysticism, we think about the hardest questions that some people choose to ask about the meaning of life. Questions that many times religious traditions prefer to put put in the shadow and not to try and explore them too much, since many times the answers are complicated or do not exist. Mystical books and their teachings are given from teacher to their students in secret. The term for Jewish mysticism is Kabbalah, and the meaning is to receive, a term that indicates intimacy that is a condition to shift and move the knowledge between students and their rabbis. However, As the print revolution came to the world, the ability to print mystical Jewish books became much easier. And in a way, it democratized the ability to read and explore mysticism. The book of Andrea Gordon focuses on these changes of print in Jewish mysticism. In our dialogue, we will explore this change, but also how it affects the Kabbalah in Europe, Israel, and North Africa, and the meaning of a holy book when it is printed and not written by holy handwriting, mostly around practical Kabbalah and magic and much more. Andrea Gondos is a postdoctoral fellow at the Freie Universität in Berlin. She holds postdoctoral positions at Tel Aviv University and Ben-Gurion University. She was also a fellow at the Katz, Katz Center of Advanced Judaic Studies at the University of Pennsylvania. So, Andrea, welcome to the New Books Network. It's really good to have you here. Thank you very much, Yakia. It's wonderful to be here and we can finally talk uh, about the book. (laughs) Yes, yes, let's do it. So when I think about the title you gave to the book, Kabbalah and and, and in print, I want to start actually before we'll go to Kabbalah and to Jewish mysticism. I would like to focus for for a few minutes about the revolution of print that's happening at the beginning of modernity. Now, we can think about the revolution of print as now we're going to have much more books and the difference is about quantity. Before we had a few books because it's handwriting, now we have many books. 
My feeling is that it's not only a revolution of quantity, but also of quality. And I wonder if you can tell us in a few points, what's the main things that changed because of the revolution of print? So it's a very interesting question. Thank you for asking, um, because this is really where uh, my um, um, book, as well as PhD dissertation began, is how does book printing change um, the circulation and the transmission of um, the esoteric aspects of Judaism, which is, which is Kabbalah. So up until printing, uh, just as you very correctly mentioned, um, Kabbalah was either not written down at all, it was, it was transmitted from master to disciple orally, or if it was written down because it was written down, it was written down in manuscripts from the Middle Ages onwards. So you had uh, manuscript fragments or manuscript uh, uh, works that circulated in a very controlled way. In other words, you couldn't just buy a manuscript. You had to um, acquire it and you probably would only uh, receive it uh, from a colleague of yours if he uh, felt that you um, you were um, uh, learned enough in Kabbalah, you were a, a proper human being, you followed the Jewish commandments. So then they would give you um, a Kabbalistic manuscript, but you couldn't just acquire it off the shelf or in a shop. Uh, so there was a very controlled transmission of, um, of Jewish mystical knowledge uh, and and um, it did not really touch the lives of ordinary Jews. Now, this changes drastically and dramatically in the age of print. Um, because with the, the 16th century, um, beginning with the 16th century, more and more Kabbalistic works from the Middle Ages that were produced in the Middle Ages begin to be printed. And there's an interesting... Um, um, debate, controversy in the Jewish communities of Italy, where these books are printed. So the center of Jewish printing at this time in the 16th century is Italy. They produce the most beautiful books, the most expensive books, the most beautifully um, uh, um, arranged uh, and presented books. So everybody wants to print in Italy. And uh, there's this controversy in the Italian Jewish communities, are we allowed to print Kabbalah? So there's the Jewish communities and the leaders of the Jewish communities understand that they are standing at this threshold of a kind of cultural revolution, but it's also a religious revolution. Because are we allowed to, as Jewish communities, are we allowed to let go of the control of our um, of our most dear, of our dearest treasure, which is Kabbalah. It is something that, that they didn't teach um, to Christians, for example. It's not until the, the, fifth, the, the late 16th century that Kabbalah is actually taught to, to Christian scholars. Um, and maybe I can talk a little bit about that later on. But so Kabbalah is not taught. It's not, not let out of the treasure box. It's not given away easily. It's, it's controlled. Its transmission is controlled. Uh, so can we, can we print Kabbalah where an ordinary Jew can buy it, where a Christian person, heaven forbid, can buy it and read it? Uh, and some rabbis, as it often is the case with great communal um, um, uh, controversies, 
him down at this side, saying that absolutely not, it cannot be printed, it will lead to heresy, religious heresy. Uh, and there were rabbis, um, for example, Isaac de Latas, who said, absolutely not. We must print Kabbalah. We are living in a very special age, the very fact. So they, interestingly, in their mind, um, printing was a sign of, um, of, of the messianic age, that this technological uh, advancement is a sign that something is changing in the world, that something is improving, and it is such a great um, asset and such a great revolution uh, in society that it, it, it is signaling the coming of the Messiah. So they, um, they um, su suggested and held that, that we are living now in the Messianic age, and this demands the printing of Kabbalistic treasures and Kabbalistic knowledge, because not only does it have to percolate down to all uh, segments of Jewish society, so even the ignorant ones, even those who, who, um, who work in menial trade or, or who do not have time to, to study the Talmud and other um, works in the Jewish library, but also it has to penetrate um, society at large. It has to get to, um, to the Christians. Uh, it has to be studied also by Christians because by imbibing this knowledge, Christians will also embrace um, the messianic times. Um, that, was, that was the idea, that, that all of humanity will be somehow saved uh, uh, by Kabbalah and by Jewish uh, esoteric knowledge. So, so in a way, we can see here a democratization of the yes. knowledge by the revolution of print, which in yes. some ideas, and I wrote it to myself to ask you later, but it's, it's so mm -hmm. interesting in a way, I wonder, and we will come maybe later to that at the end, what will be the revolution of Kabbalah now with the virtual world, right? When things yes. like even becoming to another dimension. Yes, yes, yes. And so um, it's interesting that, that, that um, when you look at scholarship, uh, there are scholars who, who doubt uh, whether printing actually was a revolution, arguing that manuscripts still continue to be produced. Uh, but not only manuscripts, there were um, techniques that were used in the manuscript age um, um, uh, that continued to be um, to be used and deployed by authors. So is it really a revolution? Um, and I think that uh, this is absolutely true, that manuscripts continued to, to have their own um, uh, place in, uh, in knowledge production. So, you know, even Kabbalistic knowledge uh, continued to be certain texts, for example, Lurianic Kabbalah, continued to be circulated. Can you, can you just say one, one word about Lurian Kabbalah for our audience? Like, when you say yes. that, what do you mean? So Lur Lurianic Kabbalah is, um, um, is a Kabbalistic system that is associated with the name of Rabbi Isaac Luria, who was a preeminent uh, uh, Kabbalist and rabbi from the uh, 16th century. Uh, he died in 1570 uh, in Safed. He lived most of his life in Egypt. Uh, but then um, uh, came to Safed to, to learn more Kabbalah and also so I think to, to, um, to transmit his own knowledge 
he knew that uh, by this time, Safed was the center of Kabbalistic learning. There was intense activity around uh, 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 rabbinic figures such as Yosef Karu, the great uh, uh, scholar of the Shulhan Aruch uh, and Halakha, um, um, uh, uh, Rabbi uh, Moses Cordovero and his brother-in-law, um, 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 and his brother-in-law in, in, in Safed. And so there was this, this great efflorescence of Kabbalistic knowledge, scholarship, learning in the this Galilean, small Galilean town in Safed. There was also wonderful economic activity. So through the economic activity of, of, of garment, of the garment trade and the garment industry, um, there are rivers and, and, and water in Safed. And that was uh, very important in, in the dyeing of garments and various handling of garments. So the, the town was able to sustain itself and, and act out um, 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 uh, a good living uh, for the scholars there, which, which of course is very important always to, to support a scholarly activity. You always have to have money to be able to sit and learn. So, um, so they had the money uh, and they were able to sit and learn and everybody uh, uh, and uh, the world around um, uh, in various Jewish communities um, they recognized that this is the center of authentic uh, Kabbalah learning at the time. So um, Rabbi Isaac Luria comes from Egypt and settles in, uh, in Safed. And uh, in a very short period of time, he manages to, um, to gather a large coterie of students around himself and around his teachings. Amongst them, his main student, Rabbi Chaim Vital, who, um, who writes down his master's teachings. And so all the teachings or most of the teachings, not all, but most of the teachings that we have today that are ascribed to the Ari, to Rabbi Isaac Luria, were actually uh, written down by Rabbi Chaim Vital. Um, and this Kabbalah uh, was often um, um, set aside from um, other types of Kabbalistic earlier Kabbalistic systems uh, and, and regarded as something very esoteric and difficult. It's very abstract. There's a lot of discussion about um, the sefirot, the 10 emanations uh, of, of the divine uh, self, of the divine being. Um, and so uh, the Lurianic Kabbalah is, has been regarded from its inception as something difficult uh, that needs um, to be studied with a master and cannot really be acquired just by sitting down and reading books. So because of that, Lurianic Kabbalah was, um, was circulated and passed on uh, in manuscript form for a long time until it uh, began to be printed um, later on. So I, it's, it's so interesting and I want to focus a little bit more about that. So when Rabbi Chaim Vital, he writes the, 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 the teachings of um, Ha'ari, of his uh, teacher in Tzafat, which is in Israel, um, does he know that there is print? Yes, um, print was already, yes. So the very first um, uh, work uh, of Kabbalah that is printed is in... Um, um, is the Pirush, uh, so the uh, interpretation of the Torah by, uh, by Rakanati from the Middle Ages, and that's in the 1520s. So 
Um, that's when, and then the Zohar is printed in 1558 and 1560, and the Ari dies in 70, 1570. So there's already print happening. Now, at the time that the Ari is alive, there was a kind of uh, moratorium um, 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 against uh, printing Kabbalistic works in Tzafat. So um, these works are not printed until a little bit later. And for example, Cordovero's works uh, are, are printed um, by his son, Gadaya Cordovero. So he takes those manuscripts and with the help of a very prominent Italian rabbi um, who is responsible for, he was a very important cultural agent because he, he recognizes the importance of what is going on in Tzafat and brings many of those manuscripts to Italy to be printed. And this is uh, Rabbi Menachem Azaria Dafano. This was the name of this rabbi. And, and he is wealthy. He is a leader of a uh, Jewish community. So he has all the, um, uh, both the financial as well as the uh, um, um, educational Kabbalistic acumen to appreciate these works and bring them to larger readership. So he actually travels to Tzafat, meets with the, the widow of Rabbi Moses Cordovero, again, uh, an, another um, um, uh, eminent Kabbalist in, in Tzafat at this time, um, uh, and, and takes some of his works and begins to, to print them in Italy and helps Gadaya Cordovero, um, connecting him with printers in Italy. So, so um, Chaim Vital is, uh, yes, aware of printing, aware of um, um, printing of Kabbalistic works. I'm not sure um, how much he felt at ease uh, with printing uh, the books of his master. Uh, so um, that question is, is a question that needs to be um, engaged uh, uh, in another forum, but um, he certainly does not publish uh, uh, those works. And uh, through other networks, for example, another prominent uh, student, uh, Israel Saruk, who studies with the RE or who has um, uh, works of the RE and brings them to Italy and also to Poland. But again, in, in a kind of um, in manuscript form and in a kind of controlled uh, manner. So uh, he, he goes to the communities, he brings the works, he allows certain people to study them and copy them, but not others. So at this point, we cannot talk about uh, a democratization of, of Lurianic Kabbalah yet because it's not. Uh, and it's a difficult, again, it's a difficult system. So that's another, it's another interesting question that um, I didn't get a chance to grapple in the book, but, um, but how much Kabbalah, to, so what aspect of Kabbalah um, uh, gets opened up with printing and what remains shut and closed, even though the printing of Kabbalah happens and even though we have websites and scores of books on bookshelves in libraries and in bookstores, you know, Kabbalah for dummies, uh, we have uh, the wonderful edition of the Zohar that was recently printed by Professor Danielle Matt, so which opens up the Zohar in, in, in beautiful and meaningful ways. But to what extent does Kabbalah still remain um, esoteric and hidden and difficult to decipher? So this and is something, so Andrea, I, I, I love that because it, it leads me to, to something that I was walking as I was reading your book, and, and I would love to get your idea I'm thinking about that, that the, even the word Kabbalah, which is a nickname 
um, to, to Jewish mysticism, right? As we have in the Sufi, in the Islam, and in Christian traditions. The word Kabbalah comes from lekabel, from, right? From the mm -hmm. verb lekabel, which is to receive. Mm -hmm. It speaks about very intimate relationship between a teacher and a student. And when you mention one of the important and, uh, you know, books of Kabbalah um, or Jewish mysticism, the Zohar, it's all happening stories that happen between a rabbi and his students when they walk, when he dies, when everything mm -hmm. happening by the meeting. Mm -hmm. And something in that can lost yes. when I go to Amazon and buy my book, right? And then you speak about Rabbi Chaim Vital, who is aware of that in a way, or maybe mm -hmm. start having feelings. And his book that I am learning for years mm -hmm. um, is a book that it's like, in a way, I feel he says like, ah, you want to buy my book in Amazon? Good for you. Try to understand me. I mean, no chance. Like yeah. you must have a master in order, in a way, in order, and you need to have so much knowledge in order to understand me. So I wonder about this Kabbalah as a verb to receive that mm -hmm. maybe is lost mm -hmm. by print. Yes. So there's always um, there's always positive and negative side to printing and to um, to inscription. So when you write something down, you inscribe it, you give it a form, you give it meaning, you give it um, 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 endurance because the word endures once it's written down on the page. Um, uh, whereas often we associate oral uh, uh, transmission as as losing something you know you speak something you lose something you speak a word it might be lost but if you written down in a contract you know a contract is written it's it endures uh it has a form and and, and everybody understands it whereas something oral perhaps has a secondary um um perhaps secondary to to print uh, and to 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 inscription in some sense um but quite Right, uh, you 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 noted quite rightly that uh, that there's something um, wonderful and something um, superior to the spoken word. It has a kind of elasticity. It 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 is um, um, it allows for different possibilities that print doesn't necessarily allow for. Um, one of one of my my colleagues um, um, who has difficulty with, with, with the printing of the Zohar in the sense that he claims um, the printing fixes the text too much. And there are so many manuscript versions of the Zohar that because we always see is the printed Zohar text, which was fixed and shaped by the printers, the printers of the uh, uh, Mantua and the Cremona editions, they looked at all the manuscripts and from those manuscripts, they selected, you know, A, B, and C, but not um, D, E, F, and go, and we can go on. There were so many manuscript uh, variants of the Zohar circulating throughout the Middle Ages. And, and the, the, um, the editors picked and chose what they felt would put together a coherent 
edition of the Zohar. But he argues, um, Professor Daniel Abrams, that by doing so, you lose sight of other Zohars that we don't have access to because they remain in manuscript. So we lose relationship to texts and ideas because they were left in manuscript. So that's one of the things that the age of print brings up and uh, print versus oral transmission or print versus manuscript transmission. So we have orality, we have manuscript and we have printed works. So these are the three types of uh, modes of transmission which compete with each other and each one offers um, a, a different advantage uh, and disadvantage. Now, one of the things that happens and uh, which uh, um, informs my book is that uh, the secondary elites in Jewish society, what I call secondary elites. So the uh, rabbi that I concentrated on was Rabbi Yisachar Baer. Uh, he most, most likely lived in Prague from the end of the 16th century to early um, 17th century. And they didn't really have... Um, they didn't really have the, um, the, the wealth to be sustained by a community. They had to work and act out a living. So often they took on educational, um, educational roles in the Jewish community. So they would, um, they would be um, melamdim, they would teach smaller children, or they would be parnasim, they would have uh, um, sort of secondary roles in the synagogue, uh, but they didn't really have the the full-time position that uh, a rabbinic leader or a, a wealthy person in the community would have to build a library and to, to, to study, uh, uh, to have the time to study with a master. Um, they didn't really have that. But they were, they were educators. They were pedagogues. And they understood that there are all these works now in print that, and that there's a gap between the printed work and the reader that there are others like them or others that do not have the same kind of, even the same kind of education as they have. They want to have access this, to this kind of knowledge. They want to enrich their lives, their Jewish observance by having access to Kabbalistic ideas. Because by this time, Kabbalistic ideas have been circulating. People know about it. Uh, they hear about it and certain customs so Kabbalistic customs, for example, staying up until midnight um, and into the night and studying Torah, customs like that and other customs have been circulating in Jewish communities. So communities are aware of it and they know that there are these works out there, but they don't have access to them or they do not know how to understand them and read them. Because let's remember that the Zohar is written partly in Hebrew, but most of the Zohar is written in Aramaic, in a strange form of Aramaic on top of it. So it's not the Talmudic Aramaic that people might be, um, that, um, that Jews might be aware of uh, from their studies of the Talmud. It's a, it's a unique form of Aramaic, which is, which is made more difficult by this symbolic Kabbalistic uh, 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 world that, uh, that they need to also understand. So it's a difficult text. And Yisakar, Rabbi Yisakar Beer and others like him understand that there is this, this, this gap, um, this void between readers and works. And what do they do? They say, wait a minute, I'm teaching. We need some kind of a teaching tool, some kind of a study guide. 
uh, that would help these readers understand this text better. So they, so he wrote, for example, four works, and each of these four works tries to make the Zohar more um, accessible. Exactly. So what does he do? You know, as a good pedagogue, ah, there's a problem with the language. It's Aramaic. Let me put together um, uh, a, voca uh, uh, a dictionary. Um, so in the dead dictionary, you know, he takes the words, um, he goes uh, in the order of the Zoharic text, he selects out difficult words and provides um, not only just uh, a translation to the word, but also a kind of um, Kabbalistic explanation. So what does this word mean in, in Kabbalah and, and in, in where, which other Kabbalistic sources can we uh, meet this word or, or, or what does it mean in another Kabbalistic work? So he provides explanation and translation. In another work of his uh, uh, called uh, Yesacha, he, he recognizes that the main aspect of Jewish life is law, legal uh, aspect of life, halakha, how do we live? What do we do? Um, what kind of observance uh, do we, through different observances, how do we worship God um, through halakhic observance? So he says, okay, let me enrich the ordinary Jews' observance of halakha by giving explanations from the Zohar so that the person would understand that it, you're not just doing this as a rote, just because you were commanded to do it, but rather, he says, this actually has great ramification to how the world works. You, the individual Jew, no matter whether you're a slaughterer, a field worker, a, a, a petty merchant who travels from town to town, you have a responsibility and a job and everything you do in your daily life will have an effect on God, on the, on the divine. On the heavenly realm. So it's really profound uh, what he does because he takes this very complicated system of Kabbalah, which until then was in the domain of the elites, of the Jewish elite, uh, of Jewish elite society, and brings it down to the level of ordinary Jews yeah. in order to enrich their life and in order to enrich their observance of Judaism. So, yeah. yeah, yeah. So Andrea, it's it's open so many questions. I want to, to, to try to focus on one of them. You know, I think about in in a hundred years, in a few hundred years, you know, the new Kabbalistic from today, we will not even have only like not only their books, we are going also to have their podcasts, we're going to have their voices, right? I mean, just imagine if you could now listen to all the lectures of Zehavi from Tzfat, it will be fascinating for you, right? Because you will not need Chaim Vital, you will say, hey, I want to listen to him. But it's also bring something about, uh, I think that part of the magic of mysticism is that mysticism speaks about subjects that we do not know, right? We, we don't understand the divine. And there is a belief that these mysterious people there, you know, in Sefat, this it's a romantization maybe, but also maybe true. They have some knowledge about the truth. 
And I wonder what happened when in a way I can sit in my, you know, I'm an accountant, I'm a butcher, and I go to the synagogue and now I can understand Kabbalah. Or I'm a student in the yeshiva and I understand Kabbalah. And then I'm saying, you know what? It's not so smart or it's not, they don't give me existential answers to my questions about the divine, about life. So I wonder what happened in this process when it become more popular. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, let's just uh, react to two different things that you brought up, Yakir. One of them was that this truth and this Kabbalah is so far away that we cannot access it. So maybe, you know, um, uh, the very uh, uh, unique ones uh, in the generation and in Jewish communities were able to understand it, but the ordinary people do not. And let me react to that first, because one of the things that you realize from these study guides and from um, these secondary elites, from the works of these secondary elites, like Yisachar Beer, but there were other ones. Uh, for example, um, uh, David Darshan that I, I work and I mention uh, in my book, he lived a little bit earlier uh, in Poland uh, also, um, but there were others, uh, other secondary, uh, secondary elites like them is that Kabbalah is not only for the elites. Uh, that, that understanding, also understanding the divine, is not only for the elites. That Kabbalah brings God, the divine, into the home and into our hearts. And this contemplation on the divine, that Kabbalah opens up the avenues to, um, so the Kabbalah opens up uh, the avenues to the contemplation of the divine through the stories of, um, of for example, um, um, uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, uh, through the, those stories. But what is really the Zohar about? The Zohar is really about the Torah. And what is really at the center of Kabbalah is the Torah. The Torah as a kind of... Um, um, passageway to God. And the Zohar restructures the Torah in new ways. Uh, uh, it, 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 it reconstitutes the Torah in new ways, in a mystical way. So you are not only looking at the pshat, at the literal level of the Torah, nor are you only looking at the Torah as, his, as a history book. That's one of the, the great passages of the Zohar. If it were only, the, the Zohar says, if, if the Torah was only a history book, we could compose a better one. But it's not. Do not look at the, at the, at the Torah as a history book. Do not look at the Torah as, as at the literal level. Look under, beneath the clothes of the Torah. Uh, because that is where you find a different kind of meaning and a different kind. That's where you enter into a special relationship with the divine. And that's where you can actually know some aspects of the divine. And why can we know certain aspects of the divine? Because we were created in the image of the divine. There is some kind of likeness between us and the divine. And when we build on that likeness and we strengthen that likeness through good deeds, through being like the divine, uh, merciful, uh, a kind, uh, benevolent, 
Rabbi Moses Cordovero, for example, in his um, The Palm Tree of Devorah, uh, Tomer Devorah, he outlines uh, several ways through which we, we need to emulate the divine. We need to become the divine in how we deal with the world and with people around us. So the Kabbalists and Kabbalah shortens the distance, uh, shorten the distance between us and the divine and make us more responsible to look to the divine and also to reflect the divine. And, and this is what these, these secondary um, Kabbalists, these Kabbalists who belong to secondary elites helped to do is to, to, to zero in on those aspects of Kabbalah that can be and could be and should be understood by ordinary Jews and leave the more abstruse aspects and difficult you know, theoretical parts to the elite Kabbalist who can theorize about it. But there are certain um, morsels that we can draw out from it and bring it into the daily life, which will enrich the lives of Jews. And that's what they focused in on. So they used uh, short works. Their, their works were short. They focused on practical aspects of life and stories. Thank you. So it brings me to, I, I want to take it now to a few like smaller questions that as we are coming to the last part of the interview is, if Kabbalah become more popular and it's now at every home, you don't even need to go to, the synagogue or to the institute, to the yeshiva, but you can have it at home. Does it influence also the 50% of the Jewish population that didn't have access, which means to women? Can we start seeing women who read Kabbalah, maybe they write about that, um, or even become part of the dialogue around the Kabbalah? Uh, yes, so what have, and that was actually the second part that I wanted to react to what you brought up in your previous question again is the popularization of Kabbalah. What happens to Kabbalah as we move into the postmodern age? Um, so, yes, so one of the things that happened is that Kabbalah is now available not only in print, but also on, 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 um, on digitized formats, digitized ways. Uh, uh, on various formats. You have the Kabbalah Center, for example, uh, which also connects um, uh, different individuals in the world through, through, they have their own system, obviously, of, of popularizing Kabbalah. So Kabbalah is much more accessible now. Um, uh, and, uh, and, and, and that certainly brings it into, um, into not only Jewish homes, but also uh, any, any kind of home uh, the home of, of any ordinary person. Um, in fact, uh, um, I had several, when I taught uh, a course, an introductory course in, in, in Kabbalah, I had several Muslim students in my class. So, so um, uh, they are also very interested in this system and knowing more about, about Kabbalah, uh, certainly. Um, and there are also women. There are also women who are studying Kabbalah and there are several uh, female scholars uh, particularly in Israel, but al also in North America, who have um, become uh, very important uh, experts, uh, uh, for example, in the Zohar. Um, um, uh, we have Melila Helner Eshed, who 
uh, she just published a book on the Idra, which is one of the, the yes, which is one of the the, the most uh, uh, difficult uh, uh, parts of the of the of the Zoharic uh, literature. But I mean, like in the six, but I mean, in the beginning of modernity. I mean, today oh, it's for sure, for I sure see, today. But oh, I'm speaking yes, then. So, that does do, do we have any evidence for that? We we do not uh, we do not have evidence um, too much evidence uh, in the 16th century. No, we do not have evidence in the 16th century uh, for women studying uh, the Zohar or, or uh, studying Kabbalah. Uh, later on, uh, we do have more more evidence. For example, uh, uh, Glucol of Haman. She discusses some some. Um, Zoharic Kabbalistic ideas in her in her diary um, that have obviously circulated uh, in her community and she uh, became aware of. Uh, so there's evidence um, there and um, certainly some of the prayers that were uh, recorded and discussed uh, the Trines uh, by Hava, uh, Professor Hava Weisler. So so there later on there is uh, some evidence of the circulation of Kabbalistic ideas. Um, uh, but not in the 16th century. So, so at this time, um, Kabbalah is uh, very much in the in the exclusive domain of of male uh, 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 individuals uh, of of of, of um, Jews, predominantly Jewish male um, um, rabbis and and students. So, yes. Um, thank you. Thank you. So. Another question that come to me, and I know that you did also research uh, about uh, practical Kabbalah, um, is, for example, I'm holding a book which is printed, mm -hmm. um, but this book is very different for me than other books because I have inside handwriting written oh. by a Kabbalah um, 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 mystics mm -hmm. that in a way, create the book to become, I don't want to say more holy, but in a way, it's more holy because it has power that this specific person put inside. Mm -hmm. And and it now it led to the places where like uh, uh, the wisdom of Kabbalah and practical Kabbalah come together, right? And I wonder what's happening about the holiness of this book? Because when it's handwriting, so it's like, oh, I have the handwriting from this specific rabbi. So it's not only the words and the wisdom, it's also who wrote it. It's like when we write a Torah, it's very much depends who wrote this Torah. And I wonder if you can share a little bit about like this practical Kabbalah and, and the prints. Yes, so I'm studying, I'm currently for the last two years, I've been studying uh, um, practical Kabbalah in the form of uh, magical recipe books, uh, specific to a region. So the region was East Central Europe and the, the manuscripts that I'm studying are from the 17th and 18th centuries. So there have been uh, such books written earlier, but this is what I'm focusing on and our research group is focusing on. So um, um, uh, and we're doing this project uh, uh, at uh, Freie Universität here in Berlin at the Institute of Jewish Studies. So these are handwritten recipe books. Imagine a doctor. They were a kind of shamanic doctor. So they were both shamans and doctors and uh, religious uh, 
religious uh, leaders in a way, uh, religious uh, healers uh, uh, would be perhaps the most, the, the better term. Um, so they combined um, uh, knowledge of Kabbalah and knowledge of magical operations and knowledge of herbs and, and artisanal practices. So they had access to herbs, trees, uh, and other uh, natural, um, um, not natural phenomena uh, uh, and natural um, objects uh, in, the, in the environment around them. So they wrote these recipe books uh, which were very practically oriented, and they wrote them mostly for themselves, for their own use, just as we write uh, recipe books. You know, a knowledge is handed down to you from your, from your mother or your grandmother. This is how you make this soup. This is how you make this stew. Uh, you write it down, and you're going to follow it uh, uh, as you're going to prepare your own stew and your own soup. So it's something very similar. Uh, they, there's an ailment. Um, there's, uh, for example, um, a pain in the eye or pain in the tooth or a childbirth easing uh, a difficult birth. One of the uh, recurrent recipes uh, uh, are addressed to women and women's issues and childbearing and caring for the child, becoming pregnant, um, uh, uh, breastfeeding. So how do you manage these, these, these different um, um, conditions. And so they have magical recipes. Um, uh, some of them use angelic and uh, divine names. Some of them are instructions how to write an amulet. Um, some of them are instructions how to use uh, herbs, how to concoct um, um, a particular um, uh, remedy uh, by using herbs. Uh, so, so they tap into different fields of knowledge. Um, and there are also uh, instructions in some of them. So, for example, instructions you have to fast before you um, before you um, engage in the writing of this amulet. You have to wear white clothing. You have to do um, uh, ritual ablutions. So you have to go in the mikveh. Um, you, you have to refrain from speaking for three days. So there are also instructions of what the Baal Shem has to do in preparation for writing an amulet. Now, in and of itself, these books have a certain kind of holiness, obviously, because you, you have angelic names recorded in them. Um, you have, there's an angelic alphabet, for example, which not too many people may be aware of, um, that, that the angels have their own speech and the uh, Baal Shem the Jewish magical healer has to know the, uh, the uh, uh, alphabet of the angels in order to conjure them so that they would listen to him and they would do his bidding. So, so you have these elements in these manuscripts and therefore there is uh, an inherent holiness to them. And of course, they're written by hand, which sometimes makes my life very difficult, trying to decipher, you know, is this a shin? Is this, what kind of letter is this? And sometimes it's smudged, you know, several hundred years old. It's a miracle that some of them survived, the pogroms and the vicissitudes of Jewish communities in East Central Europe um, and the Holocaust, of course. And so, so uh, they are holy. But the really holy objects are usually the amulets. And uh, I have found books that do have prepared amulets in them. 
uh, one at the Hebrew, um, at the uh, National Library in Israel, in Jerusalem, for example, has a few amulets in them, but they are basically notes to write amulets. So uh, they are um, uh, in preparation of an amulet. They are not completed uh, ritual objects yet, but there is a certain sense of holiness to them. And they are a fascinating, fascinating world because each one is slightly different. You would expect to find similar or very same recipes for the same ailment because they come from a similar geographical region. So for example, if let's say we talk about Morocco, now where your grandfather had similar, probably access to similar kind of recipe books, um, perhaps I would expect those recipes to be different. But here it's, you're talking about the same geographical region and yet they're almost, each one is different than the other. So it just shows you that there are different channels of transmission and the ingredients and the methods change ever so slightly. Wow, so much. It's so much. And um, we need to end, but I will just say like, just now imagine what the virtual world is going to bring to all of us, right? I mean, yes. Um, yes. It's, it's incredible. I know I have a friend who was for many, many years um, a Lithuanian Jewish mystic, and he left the ultra-Orthodox world because of the internet and his relationship that were created with mystic from Buddhist traditions and from Hindu, um, not only from the monotheistic ones. So it's like, it's so much. Mm-hmm. Andrea, thank you so much for joining the New Books Network and for writing your book about Kabbalah and print. Thank you very much, Yaki, for inviting me to talk to you. And thank you for these wonderful questions and for giving me the opportunity to discuss uh, uh, some of my my, uh, research and and the book. Uh, And hopefully there is a new book in writing which will look at magic and women. Wow. Okay, so I'm preparing the next podcast. (laughs) The next one, we're going to magic, to Harry Potter. I love that, Andrea. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Yaki.